Welcome along to Spin Now with me, Katie. And it's that time of the week where we have a chat with this week's special guest. Tuesday, the 10th of October, World Mental Health Day 2023 is an opportunity for people and communities to unite behind the theme. Mental health is a universal human right to improve knowledge, raise awareness and drive action that promotes and protects everyone's mental health as a universal human right. Across the next four weeks, I will be chatting to different professionals on different topics that go a little deeper into the causes of people's mental health declines. This week's special guest is the President of the College of Psychiatrists of Ireland is Dr Larkin Martin. Larkin, how are you? I'm very well, Katie. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me. I love to use my special guest slot to educate people on different areas. Mental health, it's a word that is used so easily with anxiety, depression, people feeling low, but it does go much deeper than that. Am I right in saying? Absolutely. And you've really hit the nail on the head with that because people use the word mental health to mean everything from a minor upset to a very serious illness. And that's one of the things we often struggle with um, is the difference between mental illness and mental distress, for example. And I think sometimes people are afraid to use the word mental illness because it still carries a little bit of the stigma. But one of the difficulties with that is then maybe people don't necessarily get the treatment they require. And I suppose if you want to look at the difference between them, I'm sitting here with you this morning on the radio. I'm a little bit anxious. As nice as you are, I'm a little bit anxious. But I could be more anxious maybe if I was walking up the aisle to be married or going into an exam. All of these things are normal anxieties and they do produce certain physical symptoms. But then if life gets a little bit tougher, maybe you lose somebody, you lose your job, you have a traumatic experience, you have significant financial difficulties, then those kind of stresses become much more significant and much less easy to bear. And of course, everyone's individual. So, it, you know, some people are able to take on a lot more stuff and be a lot more resilient mm-hmm. than others. And that's just the way of uh, the way of the human condition. Um, but the longer that sort of stuff goes on, the more wearing it gets. It doesn't necessarily make itself a mental illness, but it does mean that people need help. And this is where we start to get to the blurred area, because beyond a certain point with with mental health distress, people do need help. Doesn't necessarily mean they need a psychiatrist but they need help. And very often that's the bit that's not available to them. When we get to talking about mental illness, it's a different category entirely. And it's when the when disorders are much more serious, have a much more significant impact on somebody's functioning. And the sort of conditions we talk about in, in psychiatry are things like schizophrenia, bipolar affective disorder, serious depressions, eating disorder, um, serious anxiety disorders, which could be of many different types, including PTSD and OCD and, and conditions like that. And many of these conditions would actually have a clear biological basis. And that's why they respond to medications. Some of them would have a much more psychological basis and would respond to psychological interventions. But I suppose when we as psychiatrists talk about ourselves as specialists, we deal with the more severe end of illness, what we refer to as moderate to severe mental illness. So I suppose if you have mild blood pressure, you go to your GP, you don't go to a cardiologist. But if it gets more severe, then you're referred on to the specialist. And that's kind of where we sit in the in the mental health arena. So we handle a more significant Uh, illnesses and disorders. That's so well explained. There's so many different aspects to this and it's so fascinating because I feel like there's such a blurred line. You know, people are going to the wrong doctors for the wrong things and getting the wrong diagnoses sometimes. And as you said, on the more serious scale, people need medication 
to fix that. What would you say the difference between a talk therapist and a psychiatrist is? What is a psychiatrist? Well, I suppose first and foremost, a psychiatrist is a medical doctor. So they go through their training to become a medical doctor. And once that's completed, then they spend anything between seven and nine years in further training before they are a fully qualified specialist consultant psychiatrist. So as you can imagine, there's a lot of learning in all of that. um, And that's why they are considered experts in their field. Um, One of the differences, I suppose, between doctors and other mental health professionals is that doctors are able to prescribe medication. Now, there are certain instances where other professionals can, but it's to a limited extent. The other important thing is throughout all of that training, I suppose the, the doctor grasps the concept of the big picture of managing a patient. So there are lots of other professionals with lots of other skills um, and these are incredibly valuable in treating somebody. But when you have the consultant there as the team leader, they, they're a bit like the movie producer. You know, they have to pull all the little bits in. It's not just about the illness. It's not just about the social stresses. It's not just about the psychological difficulties. It's about pulling everything in so the patient gets the best possible service. And that's why the consultant is the team leader. They're in that big picture position um, of being able to pull all of that together. And when you go to a psychiatrist, what's the process? I, I feel like people would always wonder, or listeners would wonder, what's the process? We go to talk therapy, you know you go to talk and you talk about your traumas to bring them to light in order to acknowledge them, to in, in order to heal them and to move forward. But it's different with yourself. If I was to walk into your office and sit down with you, like, is there a process through figuring out what is going on with me? I suppose just to maybe row back a little bit in terms of how does someone go to see a psychiatrist to begin with? Yes. And usually that will come through your family doctor, your general practitioner. Now, even rowing further back, one of the difficulties is identifying the problem. And some people with serious mental illness don't even realise they're ill themselves. And that's a whole other area that, that we might talk about a little bit later on. But usually it would be your family doctor would refer you to see the psychiatrist. Sometimes it might be a doctor in another hospital if you happen to be in casualty or in for something else. So... You mentioned that, you know, people go to talk therapy, they know what happens. And and actually, in some respects, there's quite a bit of crossover because when you go to see somebody, they have to take a history. They have to find out what's been going on with you. They have to find out a little bit about your background. When you go to see the psychiatrist, you will generally be seen by a doctor on the team. Um, In some teams, it may be another team member, and we can talk about how teams work in a minute. Um, But they will do what they would call a first assessment. And that first assessment would firstly take account of what the problem is. All right. And it's the problem in the person's own words. So there may be a lot of, you know, probing questions to clarify stuff, but it really is about the person giving their own words about what the problem is. It may turn out that isn't the actual problem, but that's not the important at this point. It's what the patient's experience is now. And then they'll be asked a bit about maybe whether they've had past psychiatric problems, past medical problems, because we have to remember, of course, that medical conditions can often have an impact on mental health. And also, if we're going to be prescribing medications, we need to know if you've any physical illnesses or if you're on any medications. We'd want to know things like family history, both of physical and psychiatric illness, um, and then personal history. Um, For example, you know, what things were like growing up, Did you have a happy childhood? Had you a traumatic childhood? Were there any particularly unpleasant events during childhood that may have an effect on you later on? Um, And then work your way through, for example, your schooling. 
um, you know, such things as, you know, whether Angel A is walking, talking, did you go to school at a normal age? How did you get on in school? Were any particular difficulties highlighted? Were there any particular uh, needs identified that needed to be addressed? Um, what happened when you left school? Uh, did you go to college? Did you work? What jobs you had? All that kind of stuff. So really you're looking at building up a life picture of somebody. And then importantly, then you would look at relationships. You know, have they been in relationships? Are they married? Have they children? The quality of those relationships. And sometimes if someone comes to see you quite late in life, they might have quite a lot of information there to tell you, which could be very relevant. Or you may get somebody who's 18 where they wouldn't have quite the same extent of, of a life story. And then another really important thing that we need to know about is what we call pre-morbid personality. And what that means is, what were you like before you became ill? And that's really important for us, because you could have somebody who has changed dramatically over the last couple of months. You could have somebody who was outgoing and good mixer and you know life and soul of the party, and suddenly now they're completely withdrawn. Or you could have somebody who has become extremely anxious. And when you ask them, they've always had an anxious personality. And what we're seeing now is just an, an exacerbation of what's been going on before. So it's really important to know how somebody functioned beforehand. Um, and that, that, that is important. And then, you know, we'll need to know things like, you know, use of alcohol, drugs and so on. Have people got any history with, say, the Gardaí? Have they been in trouble in that regard? Um, and then the uh, we would need to know, you know sort of social circumstances. Is somebody working? What's their income? Are they in financial difficulties? Do they have good social support? So it's quite a broad range of stuff that's not just about the mental illness because, as I mentioned earlier, it is a big picture thing. You mm-hmm. need to know a lot more than just what are the symptoms of the illness. And then we do what we call a mental state examination, and that's looking at things like how somebody appears on the day to us, are they agitated? Are they calm? Are they relaxed? Do they appear upset? Are they, do they look after themselves well? How are they dressed? Uh, what's their speech like? Do they engage with you? We'd be looking at their thought processes, their mood, whether they have thoughts of maybe self-harm or suicide, or whether they're presenting with unusual symptoms that might suggest something like a psychotic illness. And then we would generally look at how they're functioning from a cognitive level. So, you know, is their memory good? Do they know where they are? That kind of thing. And then a really important part of that is what we call insight. Does the patient actually have an understanding that they might be unwell and maybe need treatment? So when all that's done, you have to pull all that information together and come up with a, a formulation and a, a, a description, I suppose, of, of all the important bits that you've gleaned from that. And that's where your management plan comes from. Um, and of course, you, you know, you try to make sure you've got it all done the first time, but that doesn't necessarily happen because people don't, you know, always tell you all the, the information the first time round, or a relative may not be available to give you some collateral information or whatever. So, but you try to get it as, as close to accurate the first time round and then devise your plan of management, which may involve various different things. It's usually not just one thing. It's just a minefield. It really is. Something that's always intrigued me, Larkin, is with these disorders, whether it be borderline personality disorder, schizophrenia, psychosis, are these things that can develop later in life or is this something that's always been in you? That's, I suppose, that's a really interesting one because certainly um, many of the psychiatric disorders tend to develop, apart from the ones that you would see in children and adolescents, many of the psychiatric disorders would tend to develop in adulthood. Um, now, things like schizophrenia, for example, frequently develop in young adulthood. 
um, personality disorder generally tends to emerge in young adulthood. That's when you start to see the signs of it. Um, mood disorders such as bipolar again can occur in young adulthood but can happen later. Depression can hit us anytime. Anxiety disorders anytime. Many people would have a, a genetic vulnerability to developing some of these disorders and certainly the, the I suppose what we would consider the more significant major mental illnesses such as schizophrenia and bipolar and you know se- severe depression often do have a genetic component. So you'll sometimes see it in families and that's why that's one of the questions we ask when someone comes for an assessment. Um, and some people might just have had maybe significant trauma in their background. And, and frequently, if you look at somebody with, say, emotionally unstable personality disorder or borderline personality disorder, they will very often have significant trauma in their background. So it's very hard to say if it's any one thing or even any two things that might be leading to this. Um, and it's that old thing of, you know, nature versus nurture. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the time we just don't know. Certainly there is, seems to be a more biological underpinning for some of the disorders than for others. Um, but then, you know, the, the, the impact of environment and, and social circumstance can be huge. That was actually my next question, how the likes of post-traumatic stress disorder and traumas from your past can contribute to these things. Am I right in saying that when you get older, if you start to look at these things, that's massive, isn't it? The whole trauma in your past, really peeling back that onion layer by layer to find out what the person has been through to maybe bring this on. Am I right in saying? Absolutely, Katie. And, you know, depending on what the person is presenting with, that will have a huge implication in terms of how you manage that. And many of those kind of trauma-related conditions um, don't necessarily respond well to medication unless they've led to something like, say, a serious depression, for example. But they would require quite a lot of psychological intervention. And this is where it's really important to identify the right type of psychological intervention. And one of the things we sometimes see in the area of mental health is that people go for counselling. And that can be helpful. So, for example, and there are many counsellors who are specifically trained to deal with that kind of trauma. And that's the person that the, that the patient should be going to see. If someone has post-traumatic stress disorder, the chances are they should be seeing you know, a psychologist or psychotherapist or a cognitive behavioural therapist who's trained maybe in areas of cognitive behavioural therapy or possibly um, EMDR or something like that that's specifically aimed at treating that condition. If you have somebody with severe obsessive compulsive disorder, again, it would be kind of a cognitive behavioural approach. So that's one of the things that's really important and that's one of the reasons we take such a detailed history and why teams are set up in the way they are is so that you can divert the person to the most appropriate professional, whatever that happens to be. It's fascinating. It really is because I've always said, you know, if you're going to see a therapist, make sure you get the right one, sure that you connect with them. But in actual fact, people could be going to seek out therapy counselling, whatever it may be, to find out that it's not that they're not clicking with them. It's that they're actually probably seeing the wrong person. Yeah, and I mean, having a good relationship with somebody in therapy is important, but it's of no value to you if the person doesn't know what they're, what they're doing. And of course, the other thing is, you know, therapy is often difficult and it's often challenging. So, you know, the person going for the therapy may feel uncomfortable while they're doing it, but that can often be part of it. And many types of therapy will involve doing homework, uh, and that's something that must be done. So, for example, cognitive behavioural therapy, dialectical behaviour therapy, these all involve working in between the sessions. It's not just about going in and talking in the session. There's a lot of work to be done in between. 
And not everyone is committed to that. You know, people who seem to think that, that if you go in, you sit and you talk to somebody, you're going to be better. Unfortunately, it generally takes quite a lot of work. It does. It really, really does take a long time. Is there any advice you could give to our listeners this morning on how to figure out where they're supposed to go? You know, like, is there something that they should be looking at within themselves? Like, it it seems so hard to, if they're going through this mental health struggle on whatever basis, how do they know where to go? How do they know if they need to see a counsellor, a psychotherapist? Like, how do you how do you do that? It's very difficult when it's yourself. I suppose that's the first thing. Being subjective about your own mental difficulties is, is very hard. Um, and sometimes it's useful to just sit down with a family member who may be able to assist you in terms of identifying what the problem may be. Okay. Usually it requires a professional of some sort, and very often the general practitioner is the first port of call. And I know a lot of people don't like to go to their GP to discuss you know, matters. They, they, they talk about the most personal physical matters, but when it comes to something more psychiatric or more mental health related, they become less um, less open but it really is important because generally your GP will know the avenue to go and if they're uncertain they will often refer someone to a mental health service to a psychiatric service and what I will say to people is just because you come to see a psychiatrist in a mental health service doesn't necessarily mean you have major mental illness it doesn't necessarily mean that you will stay attending that person because we have a number of people who come along to us and you know they think they need to see a psychiatrist because their GP maybe thought that it would be helpful And when we see them, you know, we we can sit down with them and say, well, actually, it's not us you need. What you need is A, B and C. Yeah. And they're quite happy with that because not everybody wants to be trudging into a psychiatric clinic on a regular basis. And if there's an alternative, they're quite happy to take it. Equally, many people who come to see us would only see us for a certain period of time. You know, so it's not like you come along and you're there forever. Um, You come in, there's a certain amount of work that you do with a particular individual on the team and then you move on, you're discharged. But it generally does take a professional to identify what's required, either your GP or a mental health professional. Occasionally, for example, you may be able to identify some very clear trauma, for example, coming back to the, the situation with childhood sexual abuse, where it may be obvious to somebody, look, I experienced this. This is where I need to go. Yes. Or, for example, somebody who has difficulty with alcohol and drugs, they clearly identify this is what's causing me the problem. It's an addiction service that I need to attend. Mm -hmm. So sometimes people will be able to identify it easily enough. But a lot of times it takes a little bit of work with a professional to identify who's most appropriate for help. Makes so much sense. Before I take a quick break, I have one more question. And it's something I feel people will relate to. Why is the word psychiatrist so scary to people when a GP might say, "Okay, I'm going to refer you to see a psychiatrist? Why is that so scary to people? Why do people have a fear of sitting with a psychiatrist and maybe finding out that they have a disorder? I suppose I I answered my own question there. It is the fear of finding out or being labelled with a disorder. Am I right in saying? It can be. I mean, nobody wants to be told you've got an illness. So I think that's part of it. I think we have struggled with the stigma with psychiatry for a very long time. I mean, although people with mental illness have been around for millennia, adequate treatments in psychiatry have been around less than a century. You know, we got our first 
psychiatric medications in the 1950s, 1960s. And up to that, we didn't actually have any real way of treating people other than psychotherapy, which didn't work necessarily for, for, for some of the more serious conditions. I think the other thing is that, you know, people think of psychiatry, they think of the old style asylum institution mm-hmm. where people went in and they never came out. Yeah. It goes on and on. So there are any number of reasons why people might be afraid of psychiatrists when in fact, really, we're a doctor sitting behind a desk asking you questions. Yeah, I love that you said that, Larkin, because I think that's vital for people to hear today. There is a stigma. And as you said, that's what people are stuck with in their heads when it is a case of walking in, you're meeting just another doctor and behind a desk. Larkin, I could talk to you all day. We're going to take a quick break and when we get back I have some more questions for you. Keep it here on Spin Now with me Katie. Welcome back to Spin Now with me Katie and I'm still joined live in studio with Dr. Lorcan Martin. I am so intrigued with the chats we're having and I could keep you on the show all day but my next question for you Lorcan is what is a multidisciplinary team? What does it mean? Um, well, what I'd say to you is most psychiatrists that, that you would meet in the community don't work in isolation. They work as part of a multidisciplinary team. And what that really means is that it's the service is delivered by a team of professionals rather than just, say, the doctor or the nurse. I suppose the really important thing in terms of delivering a good service is that they work as a team, not just a bunch of professionals who happen to work in the same building or happen to work together. So it's really important that they gel. And I consider myself extremely lucky. I work with a team where everybody supports everybody else and and works really well together. That is how you best deliver a service to a patient. So within that team, you could have things like obviously the doctor and the nurse, and you might have different types of nurses. So you could have the community mental health nurse who goes out and sees people in their home and does various therapies. You might have a clinical nurse specialist who does different therapies. You hopefully will have a psychologist, social worker, occupational therapist, ideally a dietitian because you want to deal with eating disorders and then access to things like, you know, physiotherapy, speech and language therapy as and when you need them. And that that will be more common in things like old age psychiatry. So really, it's very important that that the team gels together and, and the team will meet usually at least once a week. Very often there's a lot of infrequent contact in between as well, phone calls and so on. And, uh, and then as I said earlier, the consultant is the clinical team leader. So he or she kind of pulls all of that together and will be responsible for, for the activities of the team. I love that you link in with each other. What sort of treatments are available? Yeah, and and I mean, we tend to adopt what we refer to as the the biopsychosocial approach. And when we say that, we talk about the biological approach to treatment and frequently that's medications. Now, what I will say is not everybody requires medications and many people who attend me don't need any psychiatric medications. But they are needed for things like psychotic disorders such as schizophrenia, for example, stabilising mood and bipolar affective disorder. Very often in the, you know, the more severe end of depression, they're required and, and so on. So there are various different parts of, of, of what we do that do require medications. And that's why it's really important to have the doctor there because they're trained to prescribe these medications. They're trained to monitor them, monitor side effects and, and so on. Not very many people are treated with medication only and will usually require some form of other input and that could be anxiety management it could be cognitive behavioral therapy it could be dialectical behavior therapy it might be a particular psychological intervention for ptsd it could be for example um, managing the psychological side of eating disorders and then they see the dietitian separately so for example somebody with eating disorder generally wouldn't be treated with medication at all they'd be treated with with um dietary advice from a dietitian and psychological input from a psychologist and then maybe the nurse will be involved in you know weighing and bloods and so on so that's an example of quite a complex condition that generally doesn't need medication so it's a question of finding the treatment that is best for the individual and of course 
unlike, say, physical conditions where if someone gets a chest infection, most people will respond to the same antibiotic. When you're treating psychiatric disorders, people are incredibly individual. So what works for me won't work for you. The dose that works for me won't work for you. The therapy that works for me won't necessarily work for you. So it's a lot is about tailoring that care program or care package to the individual. And then obviously you work with your patient, you know, because they need to buy into it as well. You can't force the treatment on somebody, you know, that it's important for them to realise what they're, t- you know, what treatment they're getting, why they're getting it. It makes sense. And over the next coming weeks, we are going to be talking to different doctors on different disorders, which I'm very excited about because we will talk about the signs, the symptoms of those disorders, which hopefully will help our listeners Larkin to identify something that may be going on with them. And hoping with all the advice you've given today, they'll know the protocol to take. Something else that I am intrigued to ask, why might someone be admitted to a psychiatric hospital? Because this this is the fear. It comes back to the stigma, doesn't it? It, it does. And of course, what I will say now is that psychiatric hospitals now are not what they were, you know, 20, 30, 50 years ago. They're not big Victorian institutions. Um, our, our psychiatric unit, for example, they're all single rooms en suite uh, in a very nice modern unit. And that's the way it's going for most psychiatric units now. So they aren't places to be afraid of. Of course, people don't want to be going into hospital, but sometimes it is necessary. And very often that can be on the basis of somebody maybe being at risk of harm to themselves or to somebody else. Or maybe they, uh, they're at home and they're so ill that they wouldn't be able to receive the treatment they require at home. So, for example, someone who's very depressed, living alone, doesn't have adequate supports, you know that they're not going to look after themselves at home. Um, giving them antidepressants and, and the nurse visiting might be, might not be enough for them. So you'd bring them in under those circumstances. So it's, it's really just about bringing in people who might be at risk for a variety of reasons and treating them in an environment that, that's more supervised, more supportive. I always have a statement that I say, Larkin, if we break our leg, we will go straight to the hospital to get that broken leg mended if we are sick we will stay for a week to get the antibiotics that we need into our body to make us feel better so why are we not doing that for our mind allowing ourselves to take the couple of weeks or if it's days to get our minds right and that's really important now what i would say of course is that very often when you're treating serious psychiatric illness it's not something that improves over days or or weeks Mm -hmm. you know it's usually a number of weeks before somebody feels better. So they may be in hospital a little bit longer. So you go in with maybe the broken leg, you might be in three or four days. Um, you could go in maybe with depression, you could be in maybe four to six weeks. Yeah. You may come home sooner if you improve a bit quicker, but but it's just, I suppose, for people to have that awareness that it's not like an in-out thing, um, that, that, that things happen a little more slowly. Yeah, because it's yeah. the mind, for sure. Uh, what is involuntary admission? In very rare cases, people don't want to come into hospital when they really need to come in. And these will be people, for example, who are at risk to have harm to themselves or of harm to others or whose condition might deteriorate significantly in the community if they don't get treatment. And unfortunately, they're generally people who have lost, as I mentioned earlier, on insight. So they no longer recognise the fact that they're unwell and require treatment. And if they don't come into hospital, they're either going to put themselves or somebody else at serious risk or they're going to become much more ill and therefore much more difficult to treat. But also, of course, if you remain unwell in the community, you're at risk of things like social embarrassment, loss of job, loss of relationship, maybe committing crimes that you wouldn't otherwise do. So that's why it's really important to bring people who are seriously mentally ill into hospital, sometimes against their will. And it's not something we like to do, and we try to avoid it at all costs. But unfortunately, 
it's a fact of life that is part of our job. The numbers of, of people are exceptionally small, um, but it really does make a big difference to somebody when they are treated properly and treated promptly. Yeah, and for sure, the stigma again of the the olden days being dragged in, it's not that case. It's, you know, it's very calm, uh, the involuntary. It's it's very safe and the people that are doing it are amazing. So I feel like today is really breaking that stigma from the olden days vision of people, what they have. It's very important to point out as well that the, the mental health services are very highly regulated. I mean, the Mental Health Commission have a lot of rules and regulations and codes of practice that govern what we do. So it's, you know, it is a very highly regulated environment. Is the stigma around mental illness changing, would you say, Larkin? Uh, no, that's a big ish, that one. I think there are areas where it has become much more acceptable to talk about having mental health difficulties of one sort or another. And people, I think, are quite open about their depression, their anxiety. And these kind of things have become more socially acceptable to talk about. I think there are certain areas, for example, like schizophrenia, some of the more serious mental illnesses and perhaps some of the personality disorders where people are less happy to come forward and say they have them. I think there is still stigma attached to that. I think there is still stigma attached perhaps to going into hospital as well. Uh, and as I said, you know, that that's understandable, but hopefully we'll be able to change that over time. But there's still work to be done. Things are certainly a lot better than they were. But there's, there's more to be done. There's always space for um, more learning, more change. Dealing with mental illness, Larkin, and distress must be wearing on you. How do you avoid burnout? I eat my weight in Cadbury's. <laughs> I love it. I'm more of a galaxy girl myself, but I'll take it. We'll go with that. I think, you know, this is a really important thing in, 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 in doctors in general and psychiatrists in particular. And, you know, we, we've come across some rather startling statistics recently that, you know, up to one in 10 psychiatrists are, are suffering from anxiety and depression. You know, occupational stress and burnout among the medical profession is a really big problem at the moment. And it's causing us difficulty because people won't stay in the profession. They leave. Mm. And also what happens is people who are thinking of going into it don't. So we need to mind ourselves. I think it's really important to insofar as you can, separate your, your, your work life from your home life and find things that will help you relax, whether it's going for a walk on the beach, whether it is eating your weight in Cadbury's, although I don't recommend that, um, whether it's sitting down and having a, a good rant with your, your spouse when you go home. In my case, I, I write and produce music, totally takes me away from psychiatry. Spent a couple of hours doing that a couple of nights a week with a friend. Outside of that, you know, maybe go to the cinema, meet friends for dinner, that kind of thing. But if for, if for each of us, it could be, you know, it could be something different. It could be having a spa, a spa day. Whatever it happens to be, it's really important for mental health professionals and all healthcare professionals, although we would probably say all people who work, to be able to reduce that occupational stress. But I think in, in our area, there is the danger of taking on board a lot of people's distress mm -hmm. and upset. Um, I think it is important to separate that out so you can go home and you can you can be yourself. That's really important. That's an amazing piece of advice. Though I'm not a doctor, it is the one thing I'm still working on every day is separating, taking that time to do something that I like to do. I know it will help me. I know it will help towards burnout and it's so hard to do. I think it's something people really do struggle with. It was a fabulous piece of advice to end on. Before you go, I have one last question, Larkin. I really want to ask you about the meaning behind the hashtag It's About People. That's just, I suppose, a slightly tongue-in-cheek thing I've been using since I became president. But what I really want to get to is that, yes, psychiatry is about science and yes, there are regulations and rules and so on. But fundamentally, 
it is about people. Mm-hmm. It's about your patient. It's about the carers of that patient. And it's also about the staff you work with. And, you know, we can oftentimes lose sight in, you know, when they start talking about resources and budgets and buildings and technology and all the rest of it, we can very quickly lose sight of what the core of our business is. And that is people. And that's why I've been saying that for the the last few months. I love that. So if you were listening to today's interview and when I post it later with a link, throw in that hashtag, hashtag it's about people. I think it's amazing. Larkin, uh, I could talk to you for days. I really could. And as I said, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to have some amazing doctors on talking about different disorders, the signs and symptoms and how people can identify if something's going on inside them. If someone needed to find a psychiatrist, where would they go? Best place to start is their general practitioner because okay. they will always know where the psychiatrists are. Um, there are private psychiatrists. There are private psychiatrists who work independently in hospitals. But most of the psychiatric service in this country is organised geographically. So you will have one local to you. You'll have a psychiatric clinic with a psychiatrist and a team local to you and your GP will know who that is. Thank you, Larkin. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me live in studio with all this information this morning. And thanks for being on Spin Now. Oh, thank you very much, Katie.